story that is grand in its scope. It's magnificent in the transformations that take place. And it's rippling still around the world. We're talking about the story of a man named Saul who becomes the Apostle Paul. Last week, we talked about what was in his box. We kept, we kept showing you that box and talking about what was inside. What was it that was in there that was motivating him? Um, <clears throat> excuse me. There's a song called, I'm No Longer a Slave to Fear. And I want you to understand that what's in the box of a person who only knows religion but doesn't know God, a person who only knows the practice of religion and doesn't know the transformative power of the love of God, a person who is simply trying to do it on their own, trying to climb some ladder, trying to reach some standard that they've set for themselves or that others have set for them, but they don't know that no matter what, God treats them like, they're like his child and he loves them. Like a parent who loves the child who's wandering and the child who's walking with them. The, child, the, the parent's love for the child doesn't change. The child is impacted by all of these things. Lots of other things are going, going on. But the parent's love doesn't change. Disappointment happens. Sorrow happens. Lots of prayers go up. But the love doesn't change. No matter what the child's choices and activities are. Until a person who just knows religion knows that they are loved no matter what, what dwells in the heart. No matter the gifts, no matter how talented, no matter what they learn, no matter how many times they try to fill that gap, but what dwells in the heart is fear. People who have, have, been, have been spurred by fear, people who are struggling with fear, people who are battling this concept, their box keeps getting other junk thrown in. They keep trying to put things to center their life on in the box. They keep trying to find success or money or whatever, prestige, and they throw those things into the box. And that's, that's Saul. He's climbed the ladder of educational standard, and he's a, he's a son of Gamaliel. He's, a, he's one of the highest trained, most intelligent people in his country. He's become part of the, the Pharisees and part of the Sanhedrin. He's stepped into the leadership of Israel at a very young age. He's done so many things, but still there's an emptiness and there's a fear. The Christians come along and they, 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 they reach him in places nothing has ever reached him before. The, the passions for his faith, his passions for his religion, the passions for his practice rise up. And he does everything he can to just simply end this thing. We saw him standing at the side when, peop, when Stephen was stoned. We talked about him on his way to Damascus to carry the same plague of persecution to the people who lived there who were trying to follow Jesus. We saw him knocked to the ground by a great light. We saw him in darkness for three days. Today I want to pick that up in Acts chapter 9. The Bible says... So he, Saul, trembling and astonished, said when he heard the voice of the Lord, Lord, what do you want me to do? He's fallen to the ground. His face is in the dirt. Jesus has said to him, why are you persecuting me? I am Jesus whom you persecute. And he says, Lord, what do you want me to do? 
The Lord said to him, Arise, go into the city, and you will be told what you must do. I'm picking it up at verse 7. And the men who journeyed with him stood speechless, hearing the voice but seeing no one. And Saul arose from the ground. His eyes were opened, and he saw nothing. We'll come back to that moment, but I want you to think about what went on during that that darkened period. I want you to think about the kinds of things that haunt a heart that is filled with fear. I want you to consider what haunts your heart. That thing in your past, that maybe multiple things in your past, maybe multiple things you have done that keep coming up. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. They keep coming back. A tape that plays of someone's voice. A tape, perhaps, of your persecutor. Someone who has said when you were a child, you're stupid and you'll never amount to anything. Somebody who said you were ugly. Somebody who said you were whatever. Perhaps it's you saying those things to someone else. Perhaps you were the persecutor. Maybe you were the kid on the campus who was running around making fun of the other kids, the other boys, the other girls. And that tape plays. I think I know the tape. And I think it was a videotape that was playing for Paul. It's in Acts chapter 7, actually. And I think it's this image. I think it's this moment. When the apostle, before he became converted, stands there watching Stephen die. While he's watching Stephen die, this man, this amazing man, fallen to the ground, being pummeled by stones. Stones are coming at him. Stones are landing on him. He fell to his knees, the Bible says. He fell to his knees and cried out, Lord, do not hold this sin against them. The people who are prosecuting this penalty. The people who are throwing stones at this man who has done nothing but serve Jesus. The people who used to be the heart and core of his religion are now pummeling the stones. The first few stones came from those false witnesses. If you were a witness, you had to cast the first stone. And then they came in, one after another, after another, after another. And they're on the ground this man who is literally about to die, in the process of dying, the last word he shares are a prayer for the people who are doing the act. I think if Paul sat there in the darkness that day, he saw this man close his eyes, last few stones pummeling in on him and fall asleep. And he wondered at how somebody could do that. He felt he was sure this man was wrong. He felt he was sure that this was the problem 
in Israel. He felt he was sure. But this man, this man was blowing holes in Paul's understanding. Some images are hard to unsee. Saul, as we were reading a moment ago, rose from the ground. When his eyes were opened, he saw no one. But they led him by hand and brought him to Damascus. He was three days without sight. Neither ate nor drank for three days. I want you to imagine that videotape of Stephen's last moments playing over and over and over in his head. Hearing those words, Father, Lord God, please don't hold this sin against these men. Please don't hold this sin against these men. Looking at those with his last glimpses, still pummeling rocks with scars and scowls on their faces. Please don't hold this sin against them. Hmm. And they're standing on the sidelines. Their coat's at his feet so that they could throw the stones better. You know, you put your coat down when you want to throw a rock harder. Is the witness. Now, in a home in Damascus belonging to a guy named Judas, we'll come back to that. Eyes closed, he's processing. He's wishing he could pull that videotape out of the box and throw it away. He's wishing he could pull so many things, so many decisions, so many problems, so many things of his own creation. Why three days? Why the darkness? Because it takes time to empty the misguided passion from your life. Listen, it takes time to empty the misguided passion from your life. If you have been one of those people, and I'm speaking to you, I'm really talking to you. If you've been one of those people whose religion has been fear-based, who has been persecuting others because they don't align with the way you want religion to be done. If you're one of those people who comes at others with the this and the that that they should be doing. If you're one of those people whose religion is more fear than faith. Who has not yet realized that you are loved by God. Listen carefully. When God called you into a relationship with him, he knew all about you. When God challenged you to become his followers, he knew your best day, he knew your worst day. He knew the worst day of the past, he knows the worst day of the future, he knows the worst day of the moment. And still he loves you, and still he calls you, and still he wants you. Our God loves you so much that he'll take you anywhere. He'll take you wherever he finds you. If you had to go to prison and be on death row in order to come to God, he says, okay, prison, death row, I'm okay with that. I will go there and I will meet you and I'll take you from there. 
if you are the finger-wagging persecutor of the church, if you are the person whose fear has placed you in the front of other people, shaking your hand, quoting passages that they should be following, please understand how much he loves you. In spite of how much you're persecuting his children, he still loves you. That you can pull the fear out of the box. No longer a slave to fear. Why? For I am a child of God. When you recognize that it is his love that matters, then the fear can be taken out of the box. There in the dark, this man, educated by the best teacher in Israel, this man who has climbed the ladder to prestige at such a young age, this man who has passion and drive and intelligence and capabilities beyond our understanding, this man who has figured out the pieces and parts that go together to form his perfect faith, this man who, who, who self-proclaims that he has not known any sin of the first nine commandments. He has not committed any of the first nine possible commandment-breaking sins. He, he self-proclaims, I, know, I knew no sin until I understood covetousness. This man who was nine-tenths of the way to perfect is still living in fear. If you find yourself nine-tenths of the way to perfect, you cannot dispel the fear that's driving you. You cannot replace that with anything else. You can't replace it with behavior. You can't replace it with alcohol or drugs or violence or screaming louder. It is so often that people who proclaim that they are working toward their perfect complement of behaviors are the abusers. Why? Because their box is still full and running over with fear. I understand. But if you don't understand that Jesus loves you, you can't replace the fear. Paul spent those three days fasting, praying in the darkness. He spent those three days wandering through the memories that filled the box of his past. Wandering through and trying to understand what it was that he should do next. And all the time, as Paul is trying to empty the box, as Paul is trying to bring these things and confess them to God, saying, God, I don't know. I did this. Jesus, I persecuted your people. I'm sorry. Jesus, please help me. Guide me. Help me to know what to do. As he sat there in the darkness, no water, no food for three days, fasting and listening and waiting, God gives him a small glimpse. The Bible tells us that during this time, he was shown a vision of someone who would come and heal him. Some man whose name was Ananias would come and see him and heal him. Here's what you need to know. When you finally get the box empty enough, 
when you finally will be ready, when, when you get ready to let God move in, He will be ready to come. God will be ready when you have made some room for Him to step into the box, to become the one in whom you center your life. But you have to know how to get Him in the box because religion's trying to get Him in the box. Religion's trying to get Him into the box to become the center of what's going on. They believe they have it. They think they have it. Religions of all kinds think that they have fixed it out. They've figured it out. They've gotten God in the box. And that's their motivation. If you had asked Paul before he heard from Jesus what he was doing, what was driving him, he would say, God, and the defense of God, that's what's driving me. That's why I'm out killing these Christians. Because I need to defend the faith. I need to defend God. He would have said at the center of the box was God. But I'm telling you, at the center of the box was fear. The center of his box was fear. Fear that he wasn't going to be good enough. Fear that someone would reveal the brokenness inside of him. Fear that someone would know that he wasn't as sure as he claimed. You see, all of us have mixed motivations all the time. Paul kept coming to Jesus during the darkness. As the transformation in his life, his heart first broke for what he had done to Jesus. The faces of people whom he had bound and dragged in before the judgment of the Sanhedrin. Men and women dragged out of their home, their children crying, carried away, hauled away into jail because they believed in Jesus. A litany of charges that he himself had spoken. Those are the things that run through the mind of someone who has not yet found Jesus. Because there is no other answer for all of the things we've done but Jesus. And in the darkness, all of those videos are playing. And as they break him, as they dispel his pride, as they knock him off the ladders he's been climbing, as they take away his assurance in all that he can do, the box gets emptier and emptier and emptier. And across town, God whispers to a man named Ananias. It's there in verse 10, if you're reading and following along. It says, there was a certain disciple in Damascus called Ananias. And the Lord said to him, Ananias. And he said, here I am. If you ever hear the Lord's voice, I think that's what you're supposed to answer. Because it seems like that's what you hear in the Bible all the time, right? Samuel, Samuel, here I am. I don't know if the voice just comes from everywhere so you can't actually figure out where to look. I'm over here. I don't know where you are, but here I am. Lord said, go to the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. Now stop for a second. Every Christian in the first century in Jerusalem knows who Judas was. And now he's going to the house of somebody else named Judas. It's a fairly common name, but the parallel must have 
struck his heart. I am going to the house of somebody named Judas to heal this guy who's a Judas. I'm going to find him on Straight Street at the house of Judas. And I'm looking for Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of Christianity, the one who stood there as, a, as an accuser of Stephen, who dragged hundreds of people before the Sanhedrin, one after another, men and women, had them locked up and thrown into prison. I'm going to his house, Lord? Are you sure? You know, I've heard a lot about this guy. Jesus says to, to Ananias, Behold, he is praying. This is what we know is happening during that dark night. We know that he's praying. And he's had a vision. And he's seen a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hands on him so that he might receive his sight. <laughs> Are you sure, Lord? I think a blind Saul is, a better, is better than a seeing Saul. Are you sure you want to heal him? I mean, blind might be a good thing. If he knew that he was blinded because of what he'd done, don't you think that might change him? Don't you think that might convert him? God, maybe you should just leave him that way. You see, the, the key is the tool does not know how the hand will use it. And Ananias was the tool. And the tool was arguing with the hand about how it was to be used. Lord, I, I don't want to do that job. I'm not really the right tool. And Jesus said, you are the tool. Go and do the job. For some of you, one of the things you fear that's in the box, God, you send, God will send you on an errand you don't want to do. Well, welcome to following God. Because He will send you on an errand you don't want to do. But you have to understand that it's motivated by His love for you. That being the tool in the hand of one who loves you means that the actions He gives you are actions of love. So he gives a small explanation to Ananias, who's freaking out, as everybody in here would be, as everybody watching would be. He's freaking out. Are you sure? Are you sure? Are you sure? This is really, really saying. He's saying, are you sure you want me to do this? Continues to ask. God says, Go. For he is the chosen vessel. He is my chosen vessel. <laughs> don't, don't think ship at this moment. No, that's not, that's not the kind of vessel. He is my chosen continuum. He is the vessel who will hold the message for the Gentiles. He is the box I want to fill. He is my chosen vessel. And Ananias did what he was told, finally. He went his way. He entered the house of Judas. And laying his hands on Saul, said, 
brother saw. You've got you to understand, he didn't want to come, right? He knows who this man is. He didn't want to come do this. He didn't want to be a part of this. And here he is, laying his hands on him, as directed, and adding the words, Brother Saul. Brother Saul. Most of us got the first taste of God's love from one of these kids. Most of us got the first taste of God's love from one of these kids. Many times, many times, it's one of God's children who spoons that first taste into our mouth. Many times. He leaves it up to us. Not because he can't do it himself. But when you're able to share the love of God with someone else, it strengthens the love of God in your own heart. He says, Ananias speaking, the Lord Jesus who appeared to you, and, and Saul has to be going, how does he know this? How does he know this? The Lord Jesus who appeared to you on the road as you came into Damascus sent me so that you might receive your sight. The Lord Jesus who appeared to you sent me so that you might receive your sight. He's given you a few days of darkness so that you could search your soul and be ready for this. And now that you're ready, and now that you're ready to empty anything in the box that isn't what God wants you to do, now that you're ready to take everything out of the box and start fresh with Jesus, now that you're ready, I'm here, Brother Saul. I'm here, Brother Saul. Receive your sight. You see, conversion happens when religion becomes relationship. Conversion happens when what I know about God becomes a walk with God. When you look back in Genesis, do you see what Genesis uses as the picture of the relationship with God? Adam and Eve are there in the garden. There is no sin. Everything's going well. Everything's cool. And and Adam and Eve, this, this couple, this perfectly made people in this perfect environment are greeted every day by a walk with God. Every day, God comes and walks with them in the cool of the day in the garden. Every day, God takes a walk with His people. It's never been different. It's always been the same. God is always calling us to walk with Him. When Jesus is calling us to be yoked together with Him, the yoking together is to be in simultaneous walk. It's to be in step with Him, in sync with Him, pulling the plow in the same direction that he is. When Saul is ready to take this walk, God sends Ananias to him, who wasn't really happy about it. Don't forget this. But Ananias comes in and delivers the message, if you are going to be following Jesus, then you are my brother. You were the persecutor yesterday. You're my brother today because Jesus has sent me to bless you. The same Jesus who spoke to you on the road, Saul, that same Jesus has sent me. That same Jesus.
know, conversion is described in 1 John chapter 4, verse 19. And it says, we love him. That's conversion. We start to love God. We love him because he first loved us. We love because of his love. We love him. We fall in love with God. And we begin to love the followers of God because he first loved us. You see, once you know that you are loved, once you begin to experience love, fear gets dispelled. Perfect love casts out fear. It casts fear out of your heart. It casts fear out of your motivations. It casts out fear. Perfect love takes the fear out of the box and replaces it. When Saul understood that he was loved, every other system that he had built up in his life to to try to gain the system, to try to gain a relationship, to try to get God to love him, all the other things that he'd organized and structured in his life, everything else he had built his faith in was gone. Because the only thing left to have faith in was the love of God. Fear was taken out and love was placed in. Immediately there fell from his eyes something that seemed like scales and he received sight at once and he rose and was baptized. I've wondered about that baptism. Uh, that, that must have been cool. I mean, did Ananias get any of the other Christians to come? I wonder if Ananias got anybody else to attend this baptism. Did he say, hey, everybody, I know that you're kind of been hiding. You're kind of afraid of this guy Saul, but come to his baptism. We're going to baptize him. Come on. Come on. It'll be great. You wonder if the rest of the church said, well, you know, you go and we'll watch and see how he behaves after this. Because if we go to his baptism, he's going to see all of us. He's going to know who we are. And then who knows what he's going to do? I hope they came. One of the great moments in church history, the persecutor gets baptized, lowered into the water, buried in his sins, resurrected like Jesus out of the water, washed clean and fresh and new. A new vessel with love inside. Oh, it's not much. It's just a bare beginning, but it's a new seed in his heart. It's a new way of looking at the world. Love began to fill the empty space <clears throat> that anger and frustration and fear had occupied. Love began to fill the empty space that anger and frustration and fear had occupied. Paul's intellect, all that he had learned, all of that study he had done. Remember, uh, to rise to where he was in, his, in, in history, to rise to where he was in his religious prowess, he had to study a great deal. He had to memorize the Torah. He had to memorize the Old Testament texts. 
He had to memorize everything that God had said to Israel thus far. He had to become a student of the Talmud. He had to know what the, what the rabbis had said for centuries. All of that, to get to where he was, was captured by the love of God. It's now all of those things, those gifts and talents, are in the box with the love of God. Everything that he's been, that passionate heart, that guy who will charge out into the, into the to war for himself, is captured and covered by the love of God. This passionate, in, incredibly intelligent, strong preacher and teacher, a man who will face whatever comes, is now wrapped up in the love of God. He tells us himself that the the, the, the love of God becomes primacy, gets primacy in his life. In 1 Corinthians 13, as he's trying to tell the Corinthians to, to stop trying to grade who's better and who's worse in a religion, to try to stop making some better and some gifts worse, to, to stop doing this weighing one another against each other, he tells them in the midst of all of it, I know, because if I knew, if I know all the mysteries and have all knowledge but have not love I am nothing you see he had been there he knew the mysteries he had all the knowledge and he was motivated by fear his passions were driven by fear he was out there attacking people on behalf of God and he had all knowledge he knew all the mysteries but there was no love because he did not know that he was loved now when he saw the videotape in his head of Stephen, there, stones pummeling him on the ground, being driven down and down and down by each stone. And here's the voice of Stephen saying, Lord, please don't hold this sin against them. He knew what could motivate that heart. It was love. This man loved the people who were killing him so much that he didn't want this sin to inhibit their salvation. That is a change in the way you do life. I get mad because people take my place in line in a car. People, people cut in front of me, and somehow I'm angry about that. Stephen's being pummeled by stones. And as he's dying, he asks God to forgive them. That's a different way of doing life. The apostle says, I spent most of my life gaining knowledge. I spent most of my life trying to understand the mysteries of God. I spent most of my life trying to gain an upper hand any way I could. I have my PhD and my BA and my BS and my master's, and I've got three or four just for good measure. And if I had every bit of knowledge in the history of mankind and I understood everything that needs to be understood, it would be nothing without love because he's begun to understand the heartbeat of Jesus is the only thing that should be capping that thought that in the center of your life is to know that you are loved in the center of your life has to be to know that you are loved if that is not at the center of it something else will try to fill it because fear is, is the thing that takes hold when we don't know that you're loved. 
it's to his children in a relationship with parents who don't know how or don't express love. They become very very structured and organized and they become begin to find ways to, to try to understand how it works. Or they become so needy of love that they go searching it out in someone else's face. Because the fear of not being loved is what drives them mad. When you know you are loved by God, ultimately, no matter what, it changes the tone entirely. Paul's passions and fears were now overshadowed by the love of God. I want to leave you with, to me, I think, one of the greatest things that Paul ever said that was ever written it's in Romans chapter 8 it's the end of the chapter speaking of death and struggle and being killed he he actually quotes the passage of of the text in Psalms where we are killed all day long and he says in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. In all these things, death, embattlement, being imprisoned, being scourged, being stoned, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am convinced That neither death, nor life, neither angels, nor demons, neither the present, nor the future, nor any powers, neither height, nor depth, nor anything in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. You see... Fear was dispelled from the boss, forced out really, because love took its place. And all the things that had been thrown in there with fear to try to establish some understanding of how one relates to God were forced out with it because he'd figured out that he was loved no matter what. You're holding a box full of junk this week. If you've been looking at it, trying to figure out what has the central motivating activity of your life, and when you drill down, you realize that you're just insecure. Because you're fearful that no one can love you. that you've gone too far in some arena of your life. Paul would say to you and me, I am the chief of sinners. I'm the cause of Stephen's death. 
I dragged people who were following Jesus off to prison. And in spite of all of that, Ananias called me his brother. Barnabas called me his brother. John, Peter, James called me their brother. And Jesus. Jesus loves me. Now that I know that, I put it at the center of my life. Everything else changes. If you're not there, don't be a Pharisee. Invite him in. Let him take the place of your fears of being loved by showing you how much he actually loves you. Next time you read about the cross, Recognize that that's the word for you. I love you. I'm willing to do this because I love you. That's all. I'd like you to go home and spend eternity with me in heaven, not because I want control of you, but because I love you. That's all. Willing to shed my blood so that you can choose with all your brokenness and all the mess that you have in your life, to love me too. If you're 14 or 40 or 94, it's not too late to accept that love. Because it will make all the difference in the world. Let's pray. Father God, Thank you that you are 